Welcome to 25 Stocks of Christmas presented by Chit Chat Money. Today we have Sean Emery on the show, founder and CIO, I believe, I got those credentials right, of Avery & Co. It's a big investment fund. He's feels overqualified to be on our show, but we appreciate it anyway. We are glad to have them. They're based out of Miami. They've been around for about five years. Really, you know, check them out. They have a lot of good uh, content that they do for free. Um, and the they're website. very transparent as well. Yeah, so great guy to have on. And then next, we got to talk about our partners before we get started at Seven Investing. So you want to talk about the promo code, Ryan? Yeah, I mean, this is my sales pitch. Um, and so we get emails every day with the affiliate program. So you guys um, are doing your job. Whenever someone signs up, it's usually after my shows. I don't mean to brag, but mm -hmm. uh, okay. so I think I'm a better <laughs> salesman here. Uh, so. It's $10 off your first month. Yeah, I know that sounds appealing. So it's only $7 and you get seven stock picks from very qualified uh, lead advisors over at 7investing. Just use our code CCM at checkout. Now it's time for the show. Here you go. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are not financial advisors. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guest is not formal advice or a recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Hey, today, we are welcomed by Sean Emery, the CIO and founder of Avery, Avery & Co., uh, an investment fund based in Miami. Am I getting all that right? You are. You are. Awesome. And uh, so the company I think we're talking about today is Capri Holdings. How did you come across this? How did you find this? Yeah, um, I think it really starts with how do we think about the investment landscape? I mean, maybe I just level set with the, uh, our research mission, uh, which is uh, discovering value in a world of innovative growth. Uh, if you kind of take that statement it's it takes growth innovation value all in the same sentence i don't think that's a normal uh, phrase for most um but it's deliberate it's really how we think about investing we, we look for structural growth stories so um innovators that are disrupting uh, legacy incumbents and then also transformation stories uh, where companies are looking to really to kind of disrupt themselves right and and are uni uniquely kind of positioned to unlock uh value through transformation and that's ultimately where capri comes to, uh, to, to, to kind of uh, our investment process uh, is through the transformation. There were once a growth story um, over kind of uh, several decades. And over time, uh, it became uh, pretty obvious that this company was in need of a transformation. And ultimately our investment is, is based and premised on that transformation taking place. Okay. And uh, for anyone that doesn't know what Capri Holdings is, uh, what do they do? And I, I think it's sort of a conglomerate, right? They have a lot of different uh, parts of the business. Yeah, but with one, with one focus, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, look, it's a global fashion luxury house. Um, and it consists of three main brands today. Uh, for a long time, it was simply Michael Kors. They changed their names to Capri a year and a half ago. So uh, Capri is not necessarily uh, a common uh, company to most because it's only a year and a half old. Um, but Michael Kors was the company for, uh, what is it, 17 years now? Or 16 years, I guess, before the, tran the transition, uh, when they actually transitioned the company to acquire two other brands to make it uh, a complete house. Um, and 
So it's Jimmy Choo, Versace, Michael Kors are the, are the three brands underneath. Michael Kors leading uh, the company in revenue um, at roughly four and a half billion dollars. Uh, uh, Versace on a run rate basis at around a billion, uh, 900 million or so. And then Jimmy Choo is the third brand in terms of revenue. Uh, but, but to define it is, is really a global luxury house. Um, okay. Okay. And then before you, this may be part of your investment thesis, but do you have any thoughts on management? I know during transitional periods, a lot of times a company switches the executive team around and specifically with this company, the biggest concern that we saw was possibly the debt load that they have versus, you know, struggling within the 2020 year. Um, is the CFO really important for a company in this financial situation as well? Yeah, look, I mean, so you're starting with uh, John Idol, who's the CEO. And in some aspects, you could say the founder, um, despite not actually being the, the founder from day one. Um, he became the CEO in roughly like 2003. Um, Michael Kors was doing $20 million in revenue then. Um, so uh, to take it from kind of 20 million to, I think at, 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 at peak, roughly $5 billion in sales um, for one single brand, uh, to put that in some perspective, Lululemon's doing 4.5 or so um, billion in sales, right? So you can just think of kind of a super mainstream brand compared to uh, Michael Kors. Uh, here you have uh, a CEO slash kind of quasi founder um, that uh, has successfully built and in some aspects overscaled this business to the point where there was brand um, uh, degradation over time, just given the fact that uh, you put too much product into the market uh, and then you have inventory challenges uh, like three, four, five years ago. Um, that forces you to promote the product and then um, uh, take uh, kind of promotional activity and that obviously can lead to brand disruption and, and so on. So you had a CEO that uh, was very, very successful in operating and, and growing this business uh, and then at the same time, ran into a, a point in time where I think it was in 2016. Here we had a company doing $4.7 billion in revenue. You had a company with roughly $700 million in cash and, and $1.2 or so billion in operating cash flow. They had to make a decision. They said, do we take this pristine balance sheet and cash flow position to uh, acquire companies that we think are underinvested in? Um, or do we simply stay as a single brand? Um, and they chose to do a kind of acquisition, uh, the, the acquisition route and look at companies in which they thought they could scale up again, with the focus being this team has proven they can scale up. Um, and this is the right leader to do so. And they have the balance sheet to do so. And then when you, you, you think about the capital structure of how to get there, it's do you use, uh, uh, cash, uh, do you use uh, cash and debt? Like, kind, of, kind of how do you fund these, these uh, uh, new businesses, uh, both on the acquisition side and then on the ongoing basis? And from their point of view, it, was, it made a lot of sense to uh, fund it through uh, both cash and, and, then, and debt. Um, and they did just that. So they acquired uh, uh, Jimmy Choo first and then Versace. Um, and it was kind of a quasi levered kind of buyout type strategies, right? Kind of buy them up, uh, uh, get them into better shape, 
uh, and then use the operating cash flow of your core business to really fund that. Um, and that's ultimately what they've been doing. And, and during 2020, I think uh, for us, um, when we're looking at the success of, or kind of trying to understand how they've fared during this, um, uh, they've given us essentially a soft guidance of uh, cash flow positive in 2020, right? So you take a brand that is predominantly brick and mortar um, and a company that is uh, essentially going to produce uh, operating cash flow in arguably the hardest time ever for a retail business, uh, specifically one that is not uh, desired day to day, right? Like we don't think of buying uh, ready wear clothes for uh, runway shows uh, during COVID. Um, so, so, so to really think about how this company has been able to operate again is another feather in the cap for John Idol and his team. Now, stepping back for a second too is also the, and I think this is really, really important to the story is you have kind of the leading CEO, then you have Michael Kors, who's the leading designer of Michael Kors, Sandra Choi, who's the leading designer of Jimmy Choo, and, and Donatella Versace, which is essentially one of the leading designers for Versace. So you have uh, best in class uh, designers and best in class operators uh, with a financial model, right? Like in a normal year, this company uh, won't do the operating cash flow that they're going to do this year, but they can do north of um, 700 million, a billion. And, and when we speak about the debt, which is roughly like 1.7, which is actually less debt than they had pre-crisis, which is hard to believe, right? You're thinking of a company that has been able to actually lower their debt during COVID. That means it seems somewhat counterintuitive, uh, the ability to do that. Um, and that was a big question in March was, was the debt burden. Um, even for ourselves, we, there was debt coming due roughly like 300, 400 million dollars in December. Um, we reached out and spoke with uh, plenty of institutions um, just to get an understanding of likelihood of, of a refinance uh, or a push out um, of this debt. And again, if you have a company doing $1.2 billion in operating cash flow, a creditor isn't inclined necessarily to take on that asset to um, uh, issue some sort of default, right? And, and, and let that asset uh, essentially crumble. Um, and sure enough, they were able to push that out to 2023 um, and they have a clean kind of maturity wall uh, and, and they can essentially begin to reinvest back in their business, reinvest back into Versace, Jimmy Choo, Michael Kors. Uh, and we're, we're seeing just that. So it's, um, it's definitely a question, right? Uh, no one, I, I think prudent people don't love debt, but um, at the same time, $1 billion in operating cash flow on a normalized basis is pretty, uh, pretty uh, a good start to pay, pay down uh, your debt. So. Yeah, and I think the other thing that uh, can be concerning about taking some of the companies that have had to take on debt during COVID is that, uh, you know, when you need the money, that's the worst time to ask for the money because you're getting worse terms. And it sounds like Capri is in a position where they don't have to do that. Am I right in that thinking? Yeah, you, you, right in the thinking of Capri and also right, we're right there with you in terms of we want to stay as far as possible from companies that need to fund their op, their operations through debt or equity during this time. Um, and they didn't have to do that, uh, right? They just went through their work and their inventory that turned into additional working capital for themselves. Uh, again, when you have uh, uh, high quality brands, 
um, it, you can sell through your inventory, right? This isn't a flash in the pan type of product. Um, and can re uh, some of their inventory can be repurposed uh, for later date. Um, so luxury happened to be something of desired uh, or was desired during uh, COVID periods when people are locked up and want to feel good about uh, something and they go online and, and they're making purchases and you're seeing companies like Farfetch and some others just um, see explosive growth. Uh, that's at the marketplace level, but, but at, at the same time, some of the brands underneath are at least uh, surviving despite having 70, 80% of their, um, their operations closed. And I think that speaks to a lot of uh, them, but also looking out into the world and seeing uh, Supreme get acquired by PDH and some others, so. Yeah, um, so I guess the next question, which is sort of the crux of the discussion, if you will, is your thesis. And you've already sort of touched on this, but just, uh, I guess this is the pitch. Uh, what is it that you like about Capri as an investment? Yeah, so, so partially staying away from simply the valuation, which the valuation is by any standard cheap, um, right? Mm -hmm. So is it a value or a value trap, right? I think that's the generally, and we don't look at it through those lens, right? Again, we look at structural growth storage or transformation storage. So it's, it's either that or that, it's not growth or value. Um, and ultimately there's kind of a three prong way of thinking of it is, is starting and saying, um, uh, first is they're, they're really well positioned for social selling. Um, that's kind of number one. Two for us is really that just given their global scale, they're, they're well positioned for omni-channel, global omni-channel distribution. Um, and then three is really around their strategy through acquisitions uh, with a, a management team that's shown its unique ability to grow brands. Um, and again, if we level set our views on, on the world, uh, it's we think the future of commerce will, will drive right through social platforms. It is really our view that Instagram is the new mall. It is uh, it's digital. It has a billion times uh, more traffic than traditional malls. Um, Omni-channel distribution will be the selling motion, uh, but brand identification uh, needs to take place through these platforms, right? So if you think of Capri, well-positioned uh, through a series of acquisitions and through their own doing, um, leaving them with over 45 million followers on Instagram, one of the leading kind of house of brands, right? You think of someone like LVMH, which has nearly 90, but they also have 90 more brands, right? So they're at like 50% of the, the follower count, uh, but along just three brands. Um, so we think they're well positioned through those channels. And I think we all know it's not easy to get uh, five followers as much as it is to get 26 million, like, uh, right. um, like Versace, right? So these are competitive digital modes that they're building through time um, that we think are really, really powerful. Um, and again, if, if you start to think of that landscape of a uh, uh, digital kind of influencer led strategy, uh, you have a brand uh, like Versace that is uh, extremely defensible. Um, if you go to any brick and mortar place location, um, what are you going to find? You're going to find some of the most prolific brands sitting on that mall. And when you go online, your, your omni-channel right, approach here is your want to be well positioned there. You're going to be on the corner of the best block in a mall, but then you're also going to want to be well positioned uh, within the digital world. And we think Capri as, an, uh, as a uh, fashion house uh, is just that. And then scale. Again, it's, it's not easy to sell $6 billion in merchandise anywhere. Um, and ultimately what comes with that 
um, is specifically in a world that goes consistently to more e-commerce. Um, there's a lot of logistics and, and cost of, of shipping goods. Um, and simply put, it, it, the more volume you can put through a system, the lower that price per unit can be. Um, so a scaled out uh, uh, kind of retailer or, or brand conglomerate uh, does have that pricing power on some of the logistics providers that are out there, uh, as opposed to trying to be a single brand that's selling a million dollars of goods and trying to work with UPS and trying to get them to essentially um, uh, sell. So it's really those three aspects that we, we, we we're thinking about here is their, their scale, their social selling and, and the positioning there, and then their management team's ability to uh, grow brands. And we think that's going to be the story uh, on a continued basis. Um, and, and that's really the crux of, of the argument is whether you think they can grow those brands. Uh, can they grow Versace? And, and all evidence is suggesting so. Um, and can they stabilize the Michael Kors brand um, to a point? And again, they're looking for uh, $4 billion uh, in sales for the Michael Kors brand, which is they're, they're doing 4.5 today, at least on a trailing 12. Uh, COVID's kind of obviously throw the whole wrench in, in everything in terms of just looking at numbers like that. But uh, and at the end of the day, these are 60% operating or gross margin businesses. I think people don't really see that. Uh, they think, typically you think retail, you think low margin, high volume. This is high margin, high volume uh, business, which is uh, an, an impressive uh, thing to do. And what are you paying for it? You're paying four, five, six, seven times cash flow, depending on what you normalize for. Yeah, I think uh, so maybe some people that aren't as attuned to social medias sometimes look at the follower number like who cares but it can really help an omni-channel strategy having a huge uh following on whether it's instagram or twitter because it's a direct customer funnel yeah and I, people roll their eyes at the eyeball thing you know they're like oh they're just scrolling through it but it does help like it's like a it's like organic marketing that's almost right. i mean it's like a really efficient way to market and keep those margins up for sure I, I, I agree. I mean, that's the, uh, that's the name of the game is if, if you really are trying to sell omnichannel, you have to be everywhere. And um, you definitely for the next kind of, kind of decade of our lives, right? You're, you're going to have to be on the social channels. And if it's not you organically, you have to have a brand that will interest an influencer to the point where you have the capital to pay them and the attention of, of them to essentially, um, Want to work with you, right? So, it, I don't think having uh, Jennifer Lopez uh, wearing your dresses at the Super Bowl uh, and then doing Instagram uh, uh, posts around your brand—one that's not cheap and neither is it easy to even uh, have that individual pick your thing, your item for their big day. Um, and again, that's like further evidence of uh, what what's being built here. Okay. Uh, is, is that good? Y'all good? Yeah, that's, okay. that's good for the first half. We're going to hit a quick break. And on the second half, we're going to try to poke some holes in Sean's thesis here. Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one. So you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is red color, red color, where are you? All blocked, thanks to advanced security, included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. 
Welcome back in. Next, we have Devil's Advocate. This is our basically our counterpoints to Sean's thesis. Um, and I'll go first. Uh, and you already sort of touched on this, but uh, so my first counterpoint would be the uh, debt load, which you have uh, already sort of touched on. But uh, if there's not a return to in-store shopping, so you, you know, uh, obviously they are in a much better situation when consumers can come into the store and buy stuff because there's sort of that brand notoriety and they have all those physical stores to begin with. Um, if that doesn't return to what it used to be, they're going to have a much tougher time paying off that debt load. Yeah, look, there's, there's, there's always the uh, consideration. And if you weren't thinking about um, uh, a shift to digital selling uh, pre COVID, um, in theory, you shouldn't have been in, in those investments to begin with, right? Like all these companies should have been thinking about this previously. And Michael Kors specifically, which is their main brand, um, has a large database of 40 plus million uh, contacts um, as they have a loyalty program called uh, Kors VIP. Um, and they've seen a lot of success there uh, from their user base. So they do have a core uh, 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 audience that is consistent purchasers of theirs, and they do have a digital relationship. So when you do like uh, remove the some of the brick and mortar um, channels, which I think they they have shown that that's the strategy. The the negative of COVID is that it sh it forced them to shut things down, and um, uh, I don't like saying it, but the positive is it's giving them the opportunity to not reopen, and we're seeing that where they even on their last earnings call guided to 25% operating margins and they were doing like 19 at that brand uh, oh. pre COVID. Now they think the sustainable operating margin rate is 25 uh, on a lower revenue base. So you, you kind of get to the same place from a just cash position, a cash flow standpoint, right? Lower revenue, but much higher operating profit margin. Um, and that leads to dollars that are uh, semi equivalent to where they were before. Um, and that's an interesting phenomenon that is taking place there. And again, it's the combination of them already having 20 plus uh, kind of million social followers, which gives them that audience that we were talking about. Then you have a loyalty program and an app. Again, if you go out and try to look at, I, I'd say, I mean, we've already done the exercise. Go look at all the different brands out there that are kind of mid-luxury and up and look for a, an app to download. You, you won't find one. Um, course successfully launched one kind of like two years ago um and they have traction right i mean they, they have a user base and they have that their loyalty program that's embedded there uh they have made a commitment to 2022 to replatform their entire uh fashion house in terms of uh, their digital e-commerce mind you it's 2022 but it's really uh 2021 um in terms of uh our calendar year it's their fiscal year um and so there is that uh, uh, focus definitely on, on being digital first, uh, but then having kind of the store and footprint uh, across channels uh, in, the, in the physical world um, to kind of further sell uh, into the market. So they do think having a physical presence is important, um, but it's this omni-channel relationship that they're having with, with, with um, uh, their clients in a sense, right? So I think uh, it's definitely a critical, uh, really good question and, and something that we all need to pay really, really close attention to. Um, 
over time. Oh, uh, one other note is we just got uh, data. Uh, it was really on like uh, last early last week and seeing the Michael Kors and actually all the three brands uh, and seeing their web traffic. Uh, and Michael Kors web traffic is up 35% uh, year over year um, to their site and, and to the purchase thing. So um, is there a perfect correlation between that and, and revenue? No, but it's, um, but it, it's the highest number we've seen probably in several years. So there's something taking place there that's leading to that, that traffic that then's leading to potentially, hopefully conversion, but we'll see. So would you be a, I mean, I guess if you talked about the physical stores uh, closing down, if some of those permanently closed down and sort of trimmed some bloat, if you will, and it kind of became more of a digital presence uh, along with it, and so they shut down some of those stores, would you like that? Or do you think those stores need to be around to kind of keep up the brand uh, recognition? Yeah, it just depends where, you're, where they are. So the ones that are closing are, are not profitable, right? And or dilutive to margin, right? So they're, they're closing things that aren't where they want to be anyways, but they had long leases and, and things like that where COVID allows you to rethink that and say, hey, do we do the, the startup cost again to get this thing up and running? Um, or do we simply just walk away um, from this lease, from this area? Um, and the reality is, is that's a, from a both from an economic move and, and also just uh, thinking about it uh, as reasonable people, that, that just seems pretty prudent. Um, and there's a lot of bad malls. I think there's plenty of data that supports that we're over uh, uh, indexed to uh, square footage in, in retail. Um, and uh, again, you go around Miami where we are, um, there's some of the best malls that are out there in the world. And then there's some that are not so good and you can tell which ones aren't good or bad and one of them has a michael kors store and i can't imagine that one's doing very well uh, relative to the one at dayland mall which is uh extremely high traffic mall and I, I suspect in three years as the the malls around them uh like the, the b malls right start to uh close um it, it, it'll even attract I, I would assume that those the, the remainders remaining malls in, in the, 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 the better kind of A, A, A malls um, may produce even better, right? Uh, because you're starting to concentrate some of the traffic to different areas once again. Uh, and that may be five years out, right? Because who knows how um, this will all transpire. But the, therefore, you, you need to have that digital presence to, to kind of bridge that gap here. Okay, and then another, you mentioned this a little bit, but it seems like the data supports that this may not be a huge concern, but I think when people think of these brands, they talk about, you know, the new work and lifestyle changes. We all know about work from home and then the current recession may hurting people's pricing power or not pricing power, uh, the ability to, you know, buy spending, spending, discretionary items. Uh, they might think that the market for luxury clothes is not going to be growing for the next few years or may even see a decline. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess you're asking for my, my views on that. Yeah. So luxury spending um, has consistently held up through COVID. Um, and there's a lot of factors to that. One being that China is, uh, and the Asian markets have, have fared better. Um, and due to that, they're, they're roughly 50% of the buyers, right? So, uh, People feel realize that when uh, most of the luxury spending, uh, and I say most, it's it's roughly like forty percent of luxury uh, spending uh, globally comes from Asia, um, 
And that is a market that is a little bit more open today. And they've also have been um, not able to cross borders, right? So usually what you, you historically would see is um, uh, those travel to Europe, those travel to uh, North America, uh, and you would get a lot of kind of travel spend and luxury travel spend. So the luxury travel market is, is, is extremely weak, right? Because no one's traveling and you're definitely not going to the, mall, the, the larger malls. I mean, the larger airports and, and buying a, uh, a Gucci bag or something uh, on, on your way to some town. Um, so that's staying actually inside of uh, their respective regions. Um, but that's also because of the savings rates and we, we see all the numbers, whether it's in the mid-teens now, um, but it, it ballooned to roughly 30 plus percent um, at the peak of COVID um, in terms of uh, savings rates here in the, in the U.S. And, and when, what did you see during that time? You started to see people spend on far-fetch, far-fetch traffic uh, um, soared higher. Uh, you started to see uh, different type of traffic uh, that many of these other uh, brands out there. And people were starting to spend to feel good, I guess. Uh, which is what most people uh, anecdotally I've taken away. Um, and over the next uh, kind of decade, we believe that luxury spending will continue to uh, perform well. And, and I think one is they're making it more accessible uh, than they historically have. Uh, generally, you would buy luxury through a mall that probably many, uh, the average person doesn't go to. Um, and now you're going to marketplaces and or um, direct to their channels and, and purchasing directly, right? So you, there's that kind of expansion taking place along with product expansion. So you're seeing companies like Louis Vuitton uh, make price points lower so they, they can capture the, the younger populations and then build them up into their brands. So there's, there's multiple things taking place, but then there's also the companies adapting to their environments and saying, hey, how do we capture more share and the social channels and things like that? So I think when, when you think about all of that combined, um, it, it still takes execution at the brand level for sure. Um, so not, don't, we're not trying to get away from that, but uh, luxury in general uh, is expected to grow kind of over the next uh, decade by almost double. Um, and we think that will take place. Is this a business that, um, I guess this is just sort of a follow-up question that came to mind. Is this a business that's susceptible to uh, the macro environment. So if the market's down and sort of maybe luxury and spending decreases, am I along the right line? Yeah. Or, or is it more like a Ferrari where it's almost recession proof? Yeah. So luxury has historically been viewed as very durable during recession. So if you go back and look at like 2008, um, luxury spending held up very nicely. Uh, that's generally the cohort that can still spend $2,000 on a, something uh, of the population, right? Uh, when, when stimulus checks go out, now the whole population can kind of uh, spend their $2,000 on something. Um, and that's ultimately what you saw. But yes, that, that, that is a good point. I mean, that's the, you, you could question whether like Michael Kors, which they have a really high end, like runway luxury uh, part of that business, but then they have the more mid luxury, accessible luxury um, part of their business. That, that kind of lower end, not lower, but mid-luxury section that they try to uh, place themselves into, that's obviously not uh, something where it's as durable to macro conditions. All right. Um, I guess 
most people this our next question is about selling and we like to think about sort of the flip side of it's always fun to think about buying but there's sometimes a reason to leave a business what would that reason be for you yeah for for me it's really the Versace brand I think that is the the thing you have to be watching closely um one that's that, that's proven their success of right if, if you believe or we believe that this is going to be a fashion house that's going to go beyond these three brands um, they need to prove that they can grow the two brands that they've acquired, um, or at least stabilize them to a point where, when I say stabilize, I mean uh, increase the margins to a point where they think they can um, take them beyond that. So the goal at like Versace is to get this from 180 stores to 300 to get it on par with what um, other luxury, like true luxury brands are in terms of uh, real estate. So that's the crazy part here is that they're, on, they're, they're trying to grow the base of physical locations in Versace. Um, and that, that just shows you obviously 180 locations isn't very much in, in, in the world. Um, and it would be the Versace brand um, seeing uh, any sort of weakness on kind of uh, their plans to continue to add locations um, on the margin side and things like that. So that, that's really the brand of focus. Uh, their goal there is to take it from 1 billion to 2 billion in sales, kind of have mid teens to high, high teens operating margins. Everything that they've historically have ever done has shown that they can do that. Um, so it, it's just tracking that extremely closely to, to make sure. There's obviously then some issues on the Michael Kors side, just ensuring that that $4 billion target doesn't continue to creep lower and lower. And that 25% operating margin stays kind of where they think they can get it in the kind of low 20s to mid 20s. Um, right. So we're looking at everything to, to see if, if management team is executing. And that means web traffic, that means we track social media followers, daily growth. Um, so all these, all these avenues that really fulfill the story that we're, we've built, um, we, we just can't have holes being plucked into them that um, are damaging enough, right? It's not like this company's trading uh, um, at Lululemon levels in terms of valuation, and this company has to continue to grow at some sort of rapid pace. Um, this is all about a transitional story and making sure that transition is taking place. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. It's trading really, if you look at Lululemon, quite the opposite from a valuation level. But I guess our last question is, if you say you were like king of the day uh, for Capri Holdings, um, you got to make any changes to either management team or how they're operating the business, what they're investing in, what is one change you would like to see them make if you could? Yeah, it's tough, right? Because there's so much stuff going on and I feel like all of it has to work together for it all to work. So there's not that many changes per se. I mean, maybe just fast tracking, kind of getting the Versace brand on a digital app or something like that. Um, and fast tracking some of those initiatives, but right now is not the time to, to fast track like a, a pretty intense initiative um, such as that. Um, but I mean, th those are the things. And then you, you question kind of, do they need to, but um, fast track uh, digital initiative or kind of like Versace. But um, again, I, I want this. at some moments in time, they've, they've mentioned um, the, the kind of goal of building this fashion house. And, and I think uh, given their, their history that they can continue to grow brands. And I think uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be, uh, accessories, which is what ultimately when they're, they're buying these companies, they, 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 what they're trying to do is essentially walk in there and uh, build out an accessories line. So handbags and, and glasses and things like that. 
um, which is what they're historically really, really good at. Um, but if you look at the history and success of like an LVMH, I think you can go across categories. Um, again, I think having like five brands and, and, a, and a real stable core where nothing is more than kind of 15, 20% of your overall uh, top line or, or even bottom line for that matter. Um, I think thinking at some point beyond the, the accessory parts of the business uh, and thinking you know, they own kind of uh, different types of businesses on VMH, right? Not just simply, um, right? The, there's the jewelry, which is the uh, Tiffany acquisition that is being contested pretty aggressively um, and some other things. So that's kind of how I would want them to explain. But again, focusing on the here and now, I think is also just as important. So, And uh, LVMH, that's Louis Vuitton, Louis Hennessy, right? Am I getting that right? Yeah, they own, uh, and if you pull up a, a list of the brands, it's kind of 90, 100 brands underneath this conglomerate. Um, and super, super dominant, uh, right? Because now you have channel partners, and then these <laughs> channel partners, you let this brand in, or like you have to let this brand in and this brand in. Um, and so you become kind of this factory for uh, any sort of company that's trying to create any sort of distribution, right? Marketplaces and you're, you're just super important. You have so much leverage at that stage, um, which is why, uh, look, these companies do Karen Group and, and, and LVMH. I mean, if you, if you look underneath the surface, 30, 35% operating mar or EBITDA margins, um, right? I mean, we're talking about 20, 25% operating margins here um, that we're, we're shooting for. And, and it's very, very clear that Versace has upside to that. Jimmy Choo has upside to that. Uh, those numbers um it's just being conservative on that line um but these are powerful powerful brands and they show up again economic moat's only as good as if it shows up in the economics right and it shows up in those economics there right all right well that is going to do it uh that was capri holding with sean emery sean uh for anyone that wants to get in touch with you or find your work what's a good place to look uh, look for you yeah i mean two places is uh twitter um it's a, underscore Sean David, S-E-A-N-D-A-V-I-D. Uh, that's my, my Twitter handle. And then you can shoot me an email if you want. Sean at uh, averyco.com, A-V-O-R-Y-C-O.com. So that's where right. you can find me. Perfect. Cool. Okay. Uh, do you want to, you have any more questions? Uh, I was just going to say good luck with the, uh, the fund and, or the, you know, the management company and how that's going. And uh, we know that there might be some new things coming down the line. So we're excited to see what you guys keep doing. Cool. All right, guys. I appreciate it. And always good uh, talking with you. Yep. Quick reminder for all the listeners. Uh, this is, we are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.